Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. It's so good to be back for another weekend. My name is Mike. If you're just tuning in for the first time, uh, that's who I am. And uh, welcome to Harvest once again. I know uh, you probably, like me, you're getting impatient with the status quo. Remember, the Bible teaches us that impatience is natural. Uh, But patience is supernatural, and God has a way of building patience into us, and we thank him for doing that right now. While we're locked up, one more reminder, you may or may not be able to see this, but I held this up a couple weeks ago in an, in an, in a announcement to you. It says prayercast.com, prayercast.com. If you haven't already done it, please go there today and um, jump in. By the time you're watching this, we've already begun, but it's not too late to, to jump in on the prayers for the Islamic world to come to know Jesus as Savior. If you, do, if you sign up at prayercast.com, they will send you a daily email with a video. Didn't get away yet. Hold on. With a video of a, of a Christian who was formerly a Muslim, and that person will introduce him or herself and then lead us in a prayer for the Muslim world. This is our way of, of while Islam which is people lost in darkness, needing salvation, with no forgiveness of sins. When they're praying during their Ramadan uh, festival, we will be praying to the true God with true faith, and, and folks can get saved. So make sure you join us for that. Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark, we're up to chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. 9, verse 14 to 29, if you go ahead and open your Bible. Um, while you're looking at that, I'll uh, get us started uh, with, a, with setting the scene. Jesus had spent the night on the mountain. Uh, if, if you were with us last week, you remember that he took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and he, his glory show, uh, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory showed out of his, I guess, his face. I just assume that, and, and uh, he shined like the sun as uh, his clothing was white and all, and all the rest of the things. So it was a heavenly moment for Peter, James, and John. Uh, but the Bible teaches us that they came back the next day. So that either happened in the evening or they spent the night there. And imagine what a great camping trip that was if you were Peter, James, or John. What an amazing night you had. You, you went up on the mountain with Jesus alone, got some, some alone time with the boss, and you were loving that attention and then the next thing you know, you see Elijah and Moses and Jesus, and they're all shiny and heavenly looking. And then that freaks you out in a good way. Um, and then Jesus talks to you about it, and you get some time with him. And then you're coming down from the mountain, and everything's all right in the world. Everything is right with the world. Uh, God is showing you himself and his son. Uh, how could it not be just a great day? And as they come back towards where the other disciples were, um, they went from the mountain of heaven back to the commotion of earth. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. Please join me. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. So the other nine disciples were there, and there were lots of people. Great crowd, right? And scribes arguing with them. Scribes are important people. They were the Pharisees from Jerusalem come up and most likely to check up on Jesus, to give him a hard time, to see how uh, he's doing. But right now there's a big argument going on, right? They're arguing. Uh, (laughs) It's not a peaceful moment. 
They didn't have Facebook or Twitter, so they couldn't just say nasty things to each other from their mother's basement. They actually had to yell at each other face-to-face, and apparently they were doing that. And there were a lot of onlookers. Uh, well, you know, it was an exciting moment for everybody. And so here comes Jesus and Peter, James, and John, and what do you see? I guess we're not in heaven anymore, are we? We're back to earth, back to people just fighting. Verse 15, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. So, and, and, so Jesus is, is coming, and they're like, hey, the boss is back. <laughs> and a lot of them ran over to him, and Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Why are you fighting with those scribes over there? So no doubt the scribes didn't run to Jesus. They wouldn't want to diminish themselves by showing some sort of honor to the Messiah because they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They believed he was uh, their competition, someone to be opposed. So no doubt the scribes and all their buddies stayed back. But the people who loved Jesus, they ran up and said, hey, you're back. We're so happy you're back. We got a mess on our hands. And Jesus says, okay, explain the mess. Why are you fighting with them? And before I guess any of the other apostles could could answer that, Someone else did. Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So he says, I have a demon-possessed son. He can't talk. He's diagnosed him himself. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able so, so um, this guy brings his son. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you. I brought him to you, but you weren't here. They said, the boss is out. He's on a field trip with three of the other guys, a little leadership retreat that they took up the mountain. And so the other nine are there. Um, apparently the problem with his son is, 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 um, is it looks like a, an epileptic fit. Um, but it, it isn't. Now, there, uh, we'll see as we go down this text that, that this spirit will try to throw him in the fire and try to kill the kid more than once. And, and, and there's people who say, well, this is epilepsy, but the people back then were too stupid to know that it was physical, and so they said it was a demon. Um, and, and that's not what the Bible says. Um, he... There is such thing as epilepsy, and there is such thing as as a demon, and they can look similar, apparently. And then there's others who say, no, all epilepsy is really demon possession. And if you cast out the right demon, um, then then you'll fix the epilepsy. That also is an error. There's nothing in the Bible that says there isn't brain injuries, and physical, and epilepsy is a brain injury, a brain malady. So, but, so let's set that aside and just uh, see, see what, what we have here. So the father comes up and says, I brought him to you, but you weren't here. So I asked your guys, can you cast out this demon? Maybe he had heard that his guys had gone out among the villages and had been able to cast out demons. Said, well, could you handle this? You're Jesus' guys. And they said they tried and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. What's Jesus' reaction to this situation? Verse 19 tells us. He answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? 
bring him to me. Now, that this is, uh, if, if it were us, we'd, we might lose our temper um, and impatience. Jesus is patient, but he is showing. Why does he say this? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He, he, there's a lot that, that can be seen in those statements from the Messiah. Um, uh, Jesus says, I guess I'm going to have to handle this myself. That's implied. The, the disciples, you couldn't pull this off, apparently. The scribes, Jewish leaders, couldn't pull this off. Um, none of you people standing around can pull this off. Um, you're a faithless generation. So there's an implicit, uh, Im- implicit means not stated out, outwardly, but implied. There's an implicit condemnation of everybody for being less than they should be. You sh- in other words, it's implied you should be a more faithful people as God's people, the Jews, who've had God's word and the prophets. And he's even implying that you guys should be able to handle this without me. You, should, you shouldn't need me, but bring him to me anyway. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him... Now notice that the spirit saw Jesus. That's the demon inside the kid saw him. Immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. So the cause of this latest difficulty for the boy that the father said the boy did was Jesus' presence itself. The demon saw Jesus. His reaction to seeing the holy God was to torment the boy. He's going to torment him even more. Verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? I want you to note something here. We should all see that Jesus doesn't get straight to the healing, does he? This guy is foaming... (laughs) This poor kid, I mean, it's freaky. If you have kids and, and you've ever seen them get sick, it freaks you out, especially when you're a young parent and uh, you have your first kid. Uh, everything is a reason to go to the hospital after you've had a few. Um, you know, they could fall, their arm could be hanging off, and you go, he'll be fine, get him a Band-Aid. But when they're first, you know, <laughs> but, but if you ever see something like this, your kid having a seizure, oh my goodness, um, foaming at the mouth, you know, rolling around on the ground in torment. What's that look like? The, the father had seen it before, but had the disciples seen this? It's, it's got to be a scary moment for everybody, and Jesus does not heal the kid. Now, there's many times we see Jesus will just, bam, touch someone and heal them. He didn't do that. Instead, he decided to have a conversation with the father. Jesus does not act capriciously, or cavalierly, he says, all that I do, the Father tells me to do. I follow what the Holy Spirit says. I'm always obeying God, the Father. So he is intentionally having a conversation. He wants this conversation to happen. So he asks a diagnostic question, how long has this been happening? Does he ask it for his own sake? Probably not. He asks it for those standing around. Uh, so we would know. And um, so here's the Father answers from childhood. Well, he's a boy. So, so it's before his bar mitzvah, he's not yet a man, but maybe he's 10, maybe he's 9, maybe he's 11, maybe he's 8. But it's happened from childhood, the, the implication is since he was a toddler, he was a little feller, and this was happening to him. In verse 22, it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Epilepsy uh, may cause a seizure, but it will not 
uh, see a fire and run over and throw yourself into it. That's, it's obviously a demon is working to kill this, this kid. Um, and then the man says this. And this is, we, we normally want to look just mostly to the letters in red in our Bible when Jesus talks. <laughs> but here we want to look at this black and white, what this guy says, because Jesus wants to, to answer this. He, he says it, and Jesus wants, I was going to say Jesus wants him to say it. I'm not saying that. He, he says what he wants to say, but Jesus wants to answer this question. And maybe this is where Jesus was going all along by talking to the man. The man says this, but if you can do anything. Okay, notice that he says, if you can do anything. He says it to Jesus, if you're able. And then he says this, have compassion. He's pleading, would you have compassion? So if you're able, are you the sort of person who actually would be kind to us and help us? Jesus, how does Jesus react? He says, if you can, if you can, <laughs> he's reacting to the if. It, 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 to put it in, in, in another way, he could have said, are you asking me if I can do this? If I can do this? If I can do it? <laughs> there, there's no power problem with me. Of course I can do it. Right? This guy seems, he brought his son to Jesus. He probably heard of the stories of healing. And, and, and he wanted Jesus, obviously, to heal his son. Jesus wasn't there. And now his other nine apostles were there. They couldn't do it either. So maybe he's losing confidence in Jesus. Or maybe he came kind of as a skeptic. Maybe he said, I'll try, but it won't work. I don't know. But at this moment, he does not have full confidence. If you can do it. Jesus is like, if, if I can do it? But then after challenging his lack of confidence in Jesus, Jesus then turns to him. Well, what about you, pal? The way he says it is this. All things are possible for the one who believes. He shifts the attention to the man's faith. If I can do it, if I can do it, you're a faithless generation. What about you? What about you? <laughs> you, you? You think God wouldn't listen to you? And then immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! <laughs> this statement is often quoted, and uh, it, it may seem odd at first glance, but if you think about it, it's, it's an obvious reaction to what Jesus said. Because the father loves his son, and he wants his son to get better. Who wouldn't? And, and then he goes to Jesus and says, can you help? And Jesus kind of puts it back on him. He almost is implying, look, it, it kind of depends on you on this one. I'm going to say you have to have a little bit of faith. And the guy's, <laughs> it's as if the guy thought, well, if, it, if I have to have a part, if I have to have faith, okay, I have faith. But then he goes, well, maybe I don't, but if I don't have enough faith... <laughs> Whatever it takes, Jesus, I want that. It seems to be what he's saying. Uh, I have to believe? Okay, I believe. Well, maybe I don't. Help me believe anything. I'll do anything to get this kid healed. So um, Jesus turns his attention then to the problem itself. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, most likely this is the scribes and all their entourage and others who were just onlookers coming to join Jesus and, and the people who believe. That when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. So we get even more information. This demon not only made the boy not be able to talk his whole life, he couldn't hear either. Um, he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
Now, this is very merciful of Jesus, right? Um, there is a place where Jesus says if a, whole, if a devil leaves a man and, and it'll go out wherever demons go, and, um, and if it comes back and finds that the man is still empty, he'll come in and bring seven demons with him. Now, whether Jesus means actual demons or metaphorically, um, it sounds like actual to me, there's still this danger that if a demon leaves you, he comes back. You have to put something in his place. So, so in that other metaphor, I'm not teaching on that one now, the point seems to be if you're freed from evil, you need to replace that with God. <laughs> because you could be freed for now, but if it comes back, it comes back with a vengeance, right? And you pro- might have seen that before, and perhaps in your life, you, you were going the wrong direction, and then you decide, well, I'm going to clean up and turn over a new leaf. And then when that stopped working, you went back, and you, you were just a hellion. And maybe you're still in that state. Maybe you've seen other people do that. But in this case, he, he cast the demon out. And you think, well, what if the demon comes back later in the boy's life? Jesus says, never come enter him again. This is a one and done. Now think about this for a minute. There's mercy. Jesus doesn't, the kid hasn't said a thing. We don't know about the kid's faith. He could have zero faith, right? He can't hear. <laughs> well, he probably has no idea what's going on. Um, this is just a merciful move by Jesus. No more demon. This demon gone. But then also notice this, the demon, it's assumed, (laughs) is going to comply with this order. Now, let me tell you something about humans. If they want to do something, and you tell them to do it, not to do it, and then you turn your back, a lot of them are going to do it. And if you give them a long, long enough time, they'll all do it. And people who are determined to do evil, they'll definitely do it. If you like, if somebody robs someone, takes their purse and all the money, and you catch them, you smack them in the head and say, uh, never come back and take this lady's purse again. And then every day the dude walks by and you just leave the purse there and the lady unprotected. Eventually that guy's going to go, I'm getting that purse. Because bad guys don't obey. It's the whole issue of being a bad guy is you don't obey God. So a demon is the worst of a bad guy. This demon wasn't a converted demon. Well, now I'm going to do everything Jesus says. No, no. No, there's an interesting dynamic in the spiritual realm. Jesus has authority over demons. And his word is sufficient to bind them. (laughs) He's God. In other words... The, force, the spiritual forces of evil, and yes, they're there in the world, they will do all the evil they can, but they're always limited by God. Always limited. So when Jesus says, never again, the demon can't. <laughs> he may want to, he can't. You're done. You're done. By direct command. How great is our God? How great is our Lord? This man walking the earth can tell demons to go, and they have to go. I mean, think about people stuck in sin, in certain sins. They're like, I'm powerless over this thing. I can't make it go away. Jesus can say, go away. It's done. Anyway, let's, let's move on here. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. 
So the, the way this sentence is structured, you see the demon is convulsing him. It doesn't say the boy convulsed. It says the demon convulsed the boy. So the demon's got to go, and on the way out, it's like, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. This is a rotten demon. I, I've lost the authority over this child. He doesn't go, oh, okay, I'll be good. No way. He's like, well, then I'll kill him on the way out. And the boy was like a corpse. When the, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. Was he dead? We don't know. He might have been dead. He might have been dead. He might not have been dead. We don't know. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. So if you're an onlooker, you're thinking, what's going to happen? Jesus rebukes the demon. And you might think immediately, well, I guess the cure was worse than the disease. Heard that phrase lately? <laughs> yeah, you cured him. He's never going to have a demon problem again because he's dead. I'm not sure this is an improvement. And Jesus is, you watch that, and, and then you see the Savior just, come on, boy. <laughs> he gets up. It reminds me of Jairus' daughter. Earlier, Jesus had gone to Jairus, a synagogue official, went to his, see his, his daughter, and, and she was dead. And everyone knew she was dead. There were mourners saying she's dead. Jesus walks in the house, where, and she's dead in her room somewhere, or in a room somewhere. And Jesus walks in, and, and all the mourners are there. Why? All this. And he goes, the girl isn't dead. She's asleep. And all the people laugh at him. Nice folks. We know a dead person when we see one. He said, get out of the house. He walks into the girl. He walks up to her and says, child, arise. He says, child, arise. And up she goes. Because Jesus is the Lord of life, not just demons. He is with a word. Not only can he chase off evil, he can give life. Did he use a word with the boy? The Bible doesn't say. I'm not a saying it, he did. But what if he did? <laughs> what, not all the words Jesus or anyone says are captured in these just, just essential words. There's all kinds of conversation. The boy had never been able to hear anything in his life. Is it possible the very first words he heard ever was child arise, similar to that girl? It's possible. It's possible. I don't know. I do know this. Sometimes a person can go through life completely lost, deaf to God, deaf to spiritual matters, and all of a sudden the first true thing they hear is Jesus calling their name, saying, get up. But in any case, so the boy gets up, and, um, and, and, and that ends the story. We don't know what happened immediately, if, if Jesus talked to the scribes. All those things are not recorded here. But later on, later on, the day progresses. They go into a house of, uh, obviously, uh, one of the uh, apostles or disciples, a friendly house, and uh, now they're alone. And look what happens. It says, when they entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, uh, why could we not cast it out? <laughs> they asked him privately. <laughs> um, who wouldn't? Who want, can we talk about my failure? You don't really want to do that in public. So they get him in private and say, let's talk about the fact. And, and maybe this comes out of the fact that they, they had been sent out by Jesus earlier and were able to say, demon be gone, demon be gone, demon be gone. Why? What did we do wrong on this demon? How come we couldn't? They wanted an answer, a mechanical answer to this. And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Uh, is that a helpful answer? Uh, by prayer? What, what kind of prayer? Were we supposed to pray out loud? Did they not pray? Did they just say to the demon, get out, because we said so? Were they supposed to pray out loud in front or pray quietly? Were they supposed to be prayed up, like they, they missed their morning prayer time? Or maybe there was something wrong with their prayer life. What, what do you mean by, by prayer? It's a it's very general statement, and, and it's really hard to figure out what Jesus meant because he didn't explain it. But there is a little bit more to the story, and we'll return to that in just a moment. First, I want to give us two observations about the text. Um, Two observations. That's our text, okay? So um, I just want to point out two things uh, that I think will be helpful for us to see. Truths from the Bible here. Observation number one. Satan is evil, and evil is merciless. (laughs) Satan is evil. Demons work for the bad guy, and they're unified, and they're evil. Um, and, and evil has no mercy. Um, uh, this is a particularly vicious demon, <laughs> but perhaps all demons are particularly vicious. You just don't know it. I mean, think about this, this situation. He's still a boy, and he's had this demon since childhood. What did he do when he was two? Right? <laughs> His mama said, don't go in the road, the chariots will run you over. And he went, no, boom, demon come in. I mean, generally, we assume that demons surround those who do evil. That, you know, we, you kind of get, you, you wouldn't be shocked if some gang member all tatted up, some MS-13 guy who's killed people and raped people and, and done all these horrible things and he's in prison. You wouldn't be shocked if that guy was controlled by demons. I mean, look, he messes with them. He loves them, apparently. Right? You expect some sort of participation, right? Some sort of criminal activity, some sort of sin. This is a little kid. By the way, just to clear this up, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. There are some Christians who say they can, um, and they base that not on the Bible, but on their experiences, and our experiences need to be interpreted Right? If you see something, you can interpret it any way you want to. But the Bible we know is true. The Bible does not say that. In fact, it says the opposite. Um, when Jesus comes, he sets you free from the devil and the Holy Spirit comes into you. Yet, nevertheless, the Bible does show that Christians can get bogged down by Satan, can get harassed by Satan by participating. Not because Satan comes and you're an innocent victim. Right? Uh, let me show you one of several verses I could that indicate this principle. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you're ever in premarital counseling, a pastor always brings this one out, saying if you had a fight, make sure when you go to bed, not mad, whatever. Uh, that's what your pastor sounds like. That wasn't my voice. That was your pastor who, sorry you had such a wimp for your premarital counseling, should have had me, I'd have said it like, don't let the sun go down on your anger, but in any case, um, then it says this, this part is often left out in the premarital counseling, <laughs> and give no opportunity to the devil, you see, uh, uh, if, if, and this doesn't have to be a married couple necessarily, if this is anybody, you, 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 if brothers are fighting, if Christians are fighting, 
and, and you, you let your anger, you're angry, but you let your anger move to sin. You speak angry words, you do angry things, you make angry decisions, and you let that, uh, the principle here, I don't think it has to do with the sun going down. It has more to do is you kill that anger as soon as you can and fix it. Um, and so you don't, though. You just say, that's it, I'm going to go, I'm going to stay angry at you all day and tomorrow too, and you both say that. What it says is that gives an opportunity to the devil. To do what? Well, to tempt you to hate, to tempt you to be self-conscious, to tempt you to be insecure, to tempt you to be jealous, to tempt you to be suspicious, to tempt you to plan evil things, to tempt you to think the other person is planning evil things against you, and to, to lie to you and cause you to hate each other when really you love each other, right? Now, the devil wasn't able to victimize in that situation. Rather, you gave him an opportunity. That's what the text is saying. And so, <laughs> when we think of this boy, he's, he's had this since childhood. So I, how did Satan get authority over him? We do not know. But there's no reason to think the boy had it coming. All right? <laughs> there's no reason to think that. And you know what? The devil doesn't care. He will torment a toddler. You think, you want to know how the devil doesn't care? How about abortion? Everyone's talking about how many people die from coronavirus, how many people die from the flu, how many people die from suicide, how many people die from car wrecks, how many people die from cancer, how many people die from heart disease. And some will say, well, the biggest killer of mankind is heart disease. No, it isn't. The biggest killer by far among mankind is abortion. 10 million worldwide, and like, you know, there's 50 million worldwide killed killed on purpose by humans every year. 50 million. Add that. Compare that to your coronavirus or your flu. The biggest problem this world has as far as uh, our health care isn't insurance or our silly, silly fights over who pays for what. It's the fact that we're killing babies. You don't think Satan's got a hand in that, blinding the eyes of people into thinking this is a good idea or it's a way to control things? You say, well, well if it's that evil, Satan kills babies and laughs when he does it. Demons have zero impulse to mercy. Zero. Satan is, is, is cruel, destructive, a destroyer. And when mankind dabbles in evil and sin of any kind, he's playing with an opponent who hates purely. You don't know a person who hates purely. No one you know hates purely. A demon is hates Purely, the devil is, the, the, the hate is to the core. When humans run into sociopaths, right? Say someone who can kill and feel no remorse and kill without cause and feel no remorse, it chills us, right? <laughs> it freaks us out. And for some reason, it keeps the ID network going. And 2020, everyone wants to <laughs> see these sociopathic people. Let's look at, let's talk about Ted Bundy again. But Ted Bundy, <laughs> the amount of mercy and compassion in Charles Manson is an ocean. He has an ocean of compassion compared 
to Satan. And, and the thing is, every time you deal with sin at all, any sin, there's no private sins, you're saying to Satan, okay, I'll play with you a little bit. You're making a deal. Jesus warns us in John 10.10, 10, speaking of Satan, the thief comes to still, steal, kill, and destroy. Steal from who? Kill who? Destroy who? You and all of Adam's race. Peter warns us, Peter, the one who saw the transfiguration, who would see the crucifixion, who would see the resurrection, and, and, and then would, would suffer for Christ and plant the early church and go to jail and late in his life before he was killed, he said, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. It means, look, he's not saying don't have a cheerful disposition But you better be very serious about this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He is not, he is hungry and lions will eat you, right? You ever hear that saying? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? But not bears. Bears will kill you. And and that's, that's true of an animal. An animal like a bear, like a polar bear, um, like a grizzly bear, like a hungry lion, they will eat you. And you could say, mercy, mercy. They don't care. Peter says, that's Satan. There is a spiteful and severe enemy at large in this world. To the intellectual, he doesn't exist. His craving is to blind the eyes of people to the light of Jesus. Do not see that God is good to you. His aspiration is to annihilate. His yearning is to nurture fear, to propagate treachery, to to plant envy and jealousy and suspicion and to escalate vindictiveness and unkindness and meanness and cruelty in the human race. Look at our world. There's over 7 billion people. Starvation has never been at a lower point. The, the, the God has supplied the earth with great wealth. There is less war now than ever. Believe it or not, less disease now than ever. Our lives are better on earth than they've ever been since the garden. For all 7 billion, sure, there's people suffering. Sure, there's people hurting. But as a per capita percentage, this is as wealthy and as peaceful and there's the most people ever. You can, you can, I've visited visited the worst of countries, except not North Korea, Cambodia. But I've visited China and I've visited uh, Guyana. and, And I'll tell you something. You can live a decent life in all of them. And yet, the world is filled with human beings who hate each other. Complaining human beings, they're never happy, they never have enough, it's never good enough, everything's horrible, and I hate you. Why? (laughs) Because there's a devil. There's evil on the prowl. Oh man, do not toy with what God calls sin. It is not some strange religious 
construct. It's not something I get to choose what's right or wrong. God says it's sin not because he's a, he's a heavenly buzzkill. He's saying it's sin because you're putting your hand in the mouth of a poisonous snake when you mess with it. And he's, he's saying not only is it dangerous, it's evil. Don't touch it. You mess with sin, you give opportunity to the enemy to ravage your life, to ravage your loved ones, to ravage your home, and destroy your community. When Satan tempts you, the temptation seems so satisfying on the front end, doesn't it? This will make me happy just one more time. But it demolishes when you put it into practice. Oh, I just heard another horrible story of adultery, another one. Oh, so exciting on the front end. So much damage. When Satan tempts, it's like the lover whose lips drip honey, but her feet are rotting with gangrene. That's what being tempted to sin is. When you consider the cruelty of the demon towards this boy, let that be a sign to you. And even when Jesus said, get out, he wasn't a whipped and humble demon. He had to leave. He had no choice. And on the way out, he says, I'm going to kill the boy. You're not playing with a kitten when you play with sin. You're playing with a vicious lion. Lesson number two here is the lesson of this text is that faithlessness leaves us powerless against evil. Faithlessness leaves us powerless against evil. Faithlessness leaves us powerless against evil. What was the problem? Jesus comes down the mountain, um, and, and, and there's all the people. There's really about three or four sets of people there. You have the apostles. You have the, the disciples who aren't apostles, the men and women who love Jesus. And then you have onlookers who are just looking on. You have people who are probably curious, trying to figure out if they like Jesus. And then you have a group of people who are scribes and those with them who hate Jesus and then you have the Father and the Son, and Jesus looks at all of them and says, Oh, faithless generation. One demon is kicking all your hind parts. Why? Because you've got no faith. What about yourself? How do we protect yourself, your family, your church from sin and temptation? i got good news for you. <laughs> I got good news for you. Ephesians 6.16 is the good news. This is the good news. This is great news. Uh, I don't know if you can tattoo here, but if you want to tattoo something on the inside of your eyeballs, do this. So every time you close your eyes, you see this. I don't think you can do it, but. In all circumstances. How many circumstances? No one's in the room with me, but I can hear you from home. How many circumstances? All. How many? All. All, all. Little, yes. Big, yes. All. Because Satan's always prowling. When you feel good, yes. When you feel bad, yes. When you're not tempted, yes. When you are tempted, yes. All. Take up what? The shield of? Yes. Hopefully you said that in your living room. Faith. Well, what's the shield of faith going to do for me? Satan is no doubt going to try to get me any way he can. You know, if a soldier just has a shield, 
He could still die. No, no, you can't. You do have offensive weapons, sword of the spirit and whatnot. But you are untouchable with a shield of faith because it says, with which you can extinguish how many? All. How many? All the flaming darts of the evil one. All the arrows. Flaming, meaning not only do they hurt, they burn you on fire. With the shield of faith is sufficient to protect you, not from one temptation or some temptation or some of the designs of Satan, but all of them. you got these weirdos who do deliverance ministries telling you you got to rub your belly and put oil on your head and people got to pray a bunch of times and you got to cough and throw stuff up. That's crap, Christian. If you're a Christian, don't go there. All you need to defend yourself against Satan is... Boom. Some of them say, well, you got to pray the prayer of binding Jesus, binding Satan. I bind you, Satan. Don't do that. Why are you talking to Satan at all? You just need one weapon, shield of faith. Is the word of God true? What's the word of God say? You see it. It's right there on the screen. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's a defensive weapon. We'll talk about the offensive one in another sermon. Faith is the issue of our text, right? That's why we're coming down to the end of the sermon. We're looking at faith. That's the issue from beginning to the end. What happened? Jesus came down. He saw the commotion. What did he say? Look back at verse 19. He saw the commotion, and he answered them, and he said this. Oh, faithless generation. People argue, was he talking about the apostles, the other believers, the unbelievers, the scribes? He didn't distinguish, did he? He said, all y'all, he, was, he went all South Carolina on them. He said, all y'all got a problem. All y'all got a problem. This whole generation of Jews, people who God has, has brought from Abraham, led into Egypt, led them out of Egypt, set them free from the nations, gave them a land, took care of them, gave them a priesthood, gave them a temple, gave them the prophets, gave them the truth. And look at you. I've even been walking around for a couple of years and you people still getting your hind parts kicked by one demon. You faithless generation. The issue is faithlessness. They're all helpless. (laughs) And and when the boy finally asks Jesus for help, or the man does, he says, if you can help. That's not a very... It's never faithful to say to Jesus, "Um, I'm not sure you can pull this off, but can you help me? If. That's as much faith as he saw there. One guy saying, if... And he even doubted the goodness of God. Will you have compassion? Will he? Listen, now you might be thinking, faith, what's faith? What? Faith can be so nebulous. If you've been a part of Harvest for years, you know I repeat Hebrews 11.6 over and over again. And I always will until there's no breath in my body because it shows you the simplicity of what faith is. Right? <laughs> This man doubted the two things that go into faith. God's power and his kindness. Look again at Hebrews 11.6. And for you, if it's the first time, I've got great news for you. Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Jesus. Do you want to please God? Yeah, I'm going to do these good deeds and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to take communion. Won't work. You need something else. (laughs) What? Faith. You do those things in faith, pleases God. You do those things without faith, it's a waste of your time. Without faith, it's impossible. That means, is there another way to please God? No. 
Can I earn it? No. Got to have faith. Okay, well then what is faith? Here's the definition. Whoever would draw near to God, right? You want to go please Him, must do two things. Must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. First part, He exists. Not another God exists. Not Allah. Not some Hindu monkey God or rat God or whatever their thousands of strange man-made gods are. Not some cow. Not, you know, not spiritualism. Not, I'm spiritual. It's not religious. No. You have to know the God. And that's the God who reveals himself in the pages of the Hebrew Scripture from the mouths of the Hebrew prophets and in his son Jesus Christ through whom he's displayed himself to the world. That God. You have to know he is. You have to believe and, and that's where you believe his power. He's the God who created everything and therefore is powerful and has authority over everything. Did that man at that moment believe it when he said, Jesus, if? No. No, he's on the way. But if he's God, you don't say if. <laughs> okay? And then the other half is that he rewards those who seek him. Doesn't say rewards those who've been good all their life. Doesn't say he rewards those who... who who haven't been good all their life, doesn't say rewards those who have lucky charms or little pictures of Mary on their chest or plastic Jesus on a dashboard or a, or a St. Christopher's medal or they, they go to Mecca and walk around a thing and throw rocks. No, none of that stuff. It's just those who seek him that he will be good to them. If you ever gone to someone for favor and you didn't know if you're going to get it, maybe you're trying to get a job, I'd like a job, trying to get a raise, I'd like a raise. You, you, you go to the court and ask the judge, please let me off. You ever go to someone, to a parent, anybody looking for favor, and you don't know if you're going to get it. What this is saying is if you go to God with favor, believing that he's God, looking for his favor, you'll get it. So it's trust in the goodness of God. So this man is, is halfway there on both of them. He says, if you're good, will you have compassion? I mean, if you're powerful to heal my son, will you have compassion? Jesus like, if I am, what's wrong with you, son? And he slapped him. Well, no, he didn't do that. <laughs> but <laughs> if I am, what do you mean if? Who do you think you're talking to? He was on the edge of believing Jesus' power and goodness, and I believe Jesus pushed him over the edge. I do. I think that man's saved. And perhaps his son got saved after him and we'll meet them both in heaven. So our final point for the day for our map is, is, is the definition of faith. What is faith is what I'm really asking. It's believing two things about God. One, that he's powerful and good. And that good should be after the two. One, that he's powerful, and two, that he is good and has compassion on all people. That's my typo. So, I have to correct this. One, that he's powerful, comma. Two, that he's good and has compassion on all who call, call on him. That is what faith is. Now, do you have faith? Now that you know what it is, do you have it? Jesus confronted the man's own belief, unbelief. He said, what are you saying if you can? He said, what about you? All things are possible to him who believes. He, he, he's saying, let's check your faith. <laughs> don't, don't ask about my power. Let's ask about your faith. God will listen to your plea. You're not, what does this mean? 
It means you're not helpless in any situation. If you've been a victim all your life, you've listened to political people who tell you you're a victim, you've listened to parents who tell you you're a victim, you, you can't make it, the system's against you, quit your belly aching. You're never a victim again. There is never a situation you can go into where you're powerless because if you have faith, you have power. If you have faith, you can pray. <laughs> right? This one only comes out by prayer thought a lot about why he said that, because he doesn't define what he means. I think most people means you got to pray and, 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 and fast a long time so that you have your spiritual strength up. Okay, you can go there if you want, but here's why I don't go there, why I think he means something simpler and more direct, because in Matthew, we have the same story, and look what he says to them. This is, they, I'm going to show you this, so we have the same story same question at the end of the day by the disciples. Look at Matthew 17, 19, and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? Same question. Now, we already know part of the answer is this only comes out by prayer. So that, and that's a true answer. But Matthew focused on the other part of Jesus' answer. He said, because of the littleness of your faith. So he's marrying together prayer and their faith. They go together. I don't think, in other words, if, if, if you have a coin in its heads and tails, if prayer's on this side, faith is on that side, or it's not a real coin. <laughs> prayer and faith are the same coin. So the disciples came and said, why could we not drive it out? He says, because of the littleness of your faith. You were helpless just like the dad. He didn't believe fully, neither did you. And you know me, and you have, <laughs> right? Does this mean they're not saved? Oh, they're saved their faith was weak. <laughs> in other words, they didn't fully trust that he could do anything. They didn't fully trust that he was listening to their prayers. He said this, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. People have misused that verse to say that you have the authority to go say to mountains, move. He's not saying that. He's talking about the power of faith. In other words, if God wants you to move a mountain, you can do it through faith and prayer because God will do what he wants to do and, and the, the prayer of the righteous man availeth much, says James. So why couldn't they drive out this demon? The littleness of their faith. How little was it? Smaller than a mustard seed. <laughs> and you might say, well, what if mine's smaller than a mustard seed? You can still be saved because what he's saying is it doesn't take much. Corey ten Boom said, you do not need a great faith in God to be saved, but you do need faith in a great God to be saved. And I would add, you need faith in a great and good God. So what should we do in response to this? I think it should be coming clear to you by now. I, but just in case, I've got to underline it. Here we go. We do not want to be a faithless church. Harvest, do we want to be a faithless church? Do we want to face the difficulties and trials that come a church's way? Is it reaches out in its mission to expand the health and size of God's church everywhere, to make disciples, to reach the unreached. As we go against those things, do we want to be a church that when Jesus looks at us goes, oh my word, one demon stopped him, one bad thing stopped him, one little thing, oh faithless generation, how long do I got to put up with you till I have to come back and do it myself? Or do we want him to marvel at us? like he did um, the Roman centurion, who said, you don't, you don't even 
You don't even have to come to my house. Remember that? The Roman centurion had a servant who was sick. And he's not a Jew. He's not, he's Roman. He's a pagan. But he's heard of Jesus. He says, Jesus, I have a servant who's sick. Can you heal him? Jesus says, I'll come to your house. He says, no, you won't. I'm not worthy. I'm a pagan, right? A pagan, sinner, bad guy. But I am a man under authority, right? People tell me to do this and that, and I do it. And I tell people to do this and that, and they do it. I know all you got to do is say the word. And Jesus says, he marveled. I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Are we going to be a church who Jesus says that about? Are you going to be a family that's faithless? Every obstacle, every time Satan abuses you, you're helpless. I can't do it. It's over. And Jesus goes, oh, what a faithless family. It just takes one little bit of evil to stop them. Or are you going to be a family that prays and believes? So the answer, what we should do in response, is revive our prayer life. And I'm not talking about this muscle out of discipline to pray. I mean praying all the time (laughs) about everything believing that God is powerful to work on the thing you're praying about and, and caring enough to listen to the prayer. Not because you're perfect and you do your quiet times all the time and you do everything right, but because he rocks. He's awesome. Faith doesn't believe that Jesus will accept me because I get it right as a Christian. No, you believe he's going to do it because he's God and he's good. For some, as Christians, this may be the time to begin a true and earnest prayer life. You've been a Christian maybe for a while and it just hasn't hit you yet that you're supposed to pray about that. What? That! Pastors pray, the leaders of the church pray, the more spiritual people pray. Some men I've seen even think, well, my wife prays. You got a problem, yes. Have you prayed about it? Like that's going to do anything. It won't for you because you're faithless. But you could. You could engage God by having a true and earnest prayer life. Every single thing. You can pray for yourself. You can pray for others, and best of all, you can pray for the coming kingdom of God and the triumph of Jesus Christ on the earth. And he'll answer those prayers. How do we know? He said so. Don't say to God, if you can, would you help me with this work situation? Don't say to God, don't you care? I'm hurting, and you don't care. Say like the man said, if you're feeling those things. That's where he started out. (laughs) And Jesus says, wait a minute, what about your faith? And he said, well, if it depends on me, (laughs) then I'm not sure I have sufficient faith. Sure, I believe. Now help me because I'm not sure I believe. (laughs) And what did Jesus do? He healed his son. Do you think that helped his unbelief? I do. Christian, Christ died on a cross for your sins. God sent him from heaven. He took on flesh and went through a lot of trouble to save you. What more proof do you need that he's powerful and good? Powerful enough to raise you from the dead, to forgive all your sins, to call you from the life you had, and no matter what your past, wash it away, give you new life, and then raise you from the dead. Because he raised himself from the dead, 
and that he's good because you and I don't deserve it. We haven't earned that kind of special treatment from the greatest one. I haven't even earned special treatment from the most important people in my church, the most important people in my town, the most important people in my state. I could go to the governor's mansion. They're not going to let me in. I, they'll let other people in. I haven't earned it. But Jesus came down to me. He came to my house and said, oh, you can come to the most important place of all, my throne. I'm like, well, I don't deserve that. I know. Why would you do that? Unless you're just good. Question, two questions for you Christians. How much more would you know him if you asked him more for help? You keep him at, at bay. No one asks him for help. You know him. You're saved maybe. But you don't have the joy because you're not asking him. Second question is how many greater things would we see as a church and in our lives if we asked him to do more things? So we need to revive, restart our prayer life. And if you don't need to restart, keep your foot on the gas. And if you haven't got one, it's time to start one. And you may say here, well, I don't know him personally like you Christian people. At least I thought I did, but now I listen to this stuff about Jesus dying. I thought I just had to be good. Maybe I don't. Well, then it's your time to have your really fresh start on a true prayer life by praying the prayer he always says yes to in any heart that's humble when it says to him, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's your time. Now you pray. Right now, where you are, close your eyes, pray to him. Father in heaven, please have mercy on me, a sinner. I identify with that dad. If that's you, just pray it to him. My life is filled with problems I cannot solve. And when you look at me, God, just pray this to him. When you look at me, God, I think, where's my faith? Help me, Jesus. Save me. Because you died on a cross. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.